Welcome to the podcast of Sound Medicine, Public Radio's weekly magazine about medicine and health. I'm your host, Barbara Lewis. This free podcast is made possible by Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, Indiana's premier urban health and life sciences campus, IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. I'm Barbara Lewis. This week on Sound Medicine, patients with cancer answer that big question of how doctors should deliver the news. One of the ones that doesn't work is, I think it's time for hospice. And people are like, I don't feel like I'm ready for hospice. Also, clues that even very young children can be transgender. And what we found was that the kids actually look exactly like what they say they are. A very common birthmark and how it's treated. I like treating them because they have this incredibly dynamic life cycle. And we'll hear from the other doctor in the operating room, your anesthesiologist. When I was in residency, I remember a patient asking me if I wanted to become a real doctor someday. And a quick lesson on how to use that box on the wall. Anytime you see somebody drop suddenly to the ground, especially with no warning symptoms, somebody should go grab the AED. Everyone stand clear. Push the shock button. Shock delivered. That's all coming up next on Sound Medicine. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Welcome to Sound Medicine, Public Radio's weekly news magazine about medicine and health. I'm Barbara Lewis. We begin this week with The Talk, what patients with terminal cancer want to hear, need to hear, about their chances going forward. Dr. Tony Bach is a professor of medicine at the University of Washington and the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle. He recalls being a medical student following oncologists on rounds in the hospital. In the room, they'd say, oh, we're just going to try this next treatment. It's very promising. And then we'd walk her out, out, of, out of the room around the corner, and they'd go, she's hosed. And as a medical student, I was like, oh, my God, what, what is this? That disconnect between what the doctor was thinking and what he said to the patient, well, it stuck with Dr. Bach. Now he focuses on communications between doctors and patients. Bach's latest study, published in the Journal of Palliative Medicine, involved asking people with metastatic cancer what they wanted to hear. We played audio tapes of other patients talking to other doctors for patients who had cancer to see what they would say about it because the issue that we have in doing research is that people like their doctor. They don't want to say anything bad about their doctor. But when they're listening to a different person talking to a different doctor, boy, the layer of niceness really goes into something much more honest. So it's really interesting. Dr. Bach concluded that two ideas need to coexist as tough as they might be, that the patient is in a new place that must be dealt with while maintaining a sense of hope. I think when you're um, somebody who's been living with cancer and looking for the next treatment and, and benefiting from the next treatment, looking for the next treatment becomes a way of life. And then changing that up is like a huge disruption. And so one of the challenges for me as a, a doctor in that setting is to say, yeah, this is the reality of what's happening. We, the treatments aren't working anymore. And for me to somehow convey that, you know what, and we're still going to take care of you. And, you know, some other stuff can happen now. One of the things that one of our patients suggested was this uh, idea of saying, you know, we're in a different place. And it's a way to introduce this bigger topic and sort of set the stage of we're going to have a conversation that, that's a tough conversation, but, but a really important one. Because um, the way we've been working, the status quo, isn't going to keep working. I think when I'm introducing this topic by saying something like, we're in a different place, I think of that as a signpost. It's a transition phrase for me to say to the person I'm talking to, hey, I'm going to move the conversation into a new kind of space. And I don't expect the patient to follow me and stay there because you know what? The, the, there's no more treatment left. That is a pretty scary space. And really, I am thinking at the beginning that I am just going to open the door. We're going to look at it for a little while, and then we're going to close the door because it's just too hard. So usually it's not just one conversation. Usually it's the, 
gee, we're getting close to this. This is the kind of conversation that we could be having. Now it looks like maybe we're there. Now I think we're really there. Now I think your body is telling us something different. And so I, I think it's often this whole series of conversations that people have. The little-by-little little approach was more appealing to his study group than some of the other strategies they listened to. One of the ones that doesn't work is, I think it's time for hospice. And people are like, I don't feel like I'm ready for hospice. What am I supposed to do? Just get my blankets out for hospice and get ready to die, right? That, even though I think the, the doctor meant well in, in going to the hospice word right away, uh, it didn't work for the, most of the patients because they needed a little more of the process of, wait, how do I get from where I am to starting to think about hospice? Because for a lot of people, hospice is equated with, you know, you're dying. And that, that, that's pretty scary. Some of the other things that people don't like is actually they don't like there's nothing more we can do. It's, it feels devastating to them. The other thing they don't like is I'm going to refer you to this other person, the hospice doctor, and implicitly, unspoken, I'm not going to see you again. It turns out that's a huge thing. Dr. Box says it's terrible for cancer patients to receive bad news from a stranger, such as an emergency room doctor, rather than the oncologist who has been treating them for some time. It feels like a huge betrayal to them. Um, and so even though the doctor is a little, uh, for, in, that, in that sense, has, has made it a little easier on themselves, it's quite devastating. Just as is devastating for um, the patient to realize they're not going to talk to their doctor again after that last visit. They didn't actually know when the last visit was. It was happening, and they didn't realize it. Once the door has been cracked open that little bit, then there is space for the next phase of coping. What are the things this person is going to need to make sense of this huge change, to adapt to the huge change, to get their family ready for the huge change, um, and just to deal with the logistics of, you know, how to, I'm taking my medicine and making sure I get the treatments that are still going to keep me comfortable, and then, you know, do some of the things that are really important to me that'll help me feel like, wow, I'm still living even though I'm in this kind of crazy cancer treatment isn't working anymore place. Once that sense of a new reality is established, the oncologist has the space to ask questions that can inspire hope as well. Everybody is hoping to get cured. Everybody's hoping to have more time. And uh, as a doctor, what I have to remember is to say, and what else are you hoping for? Because usually it's not too hard to get to, I'm hoping to do another uh, weekend trip with my spouse. I'm hoping that I can watch a few more basketball games with my grandkids. Uh, I'm hoping I can, you know, finish the painting I was working on. I'm hoping I can sit outside a few more times and just enjoy the feeling of the sun. I mean, those, those, those big things and small things, there's almost always a mixture of those. And, and helping people remember um, what, what, brings their lives meaning and, and purpose is, is part of what I need to do there because the disruption is so big, right? It's just people just feel knocked off their feet. The myth is that physicians are just born knowing this or they're just these charismatic people and they just kind of instinctively know what to do. And, and I, I, the, the truth is that there are many and much of this skill that is a learned thing. Like I have learned and trained myself to pay really close attention to the exact words the patient says so that when I repeat back what they say, I use those exact words to as much a degree uh, as I can. Dr. Tony Bach told me that he believes the ideas of patient-centered care and access to what he calls Dr. Google, the medical landscape really has changed. I think we are getting more human with each other in these and, and stepping out of our white coats. I, I do think that there is a cultural moment that is shifting now. And I think part of it is shifting because doctors are trying these new things and in, in ways to adapt to their patients better. And I also think that patients are um, asking for something a little different from their doctors. Dr. Tony Bach is an oncologist with the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance and the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle. And he recently published another paper as well on the wrenching conversations that doctors and nurses often need to have with each other. Its title, Why Are We Doing This? We'll post links to both of those papers at our website. You can find them by going to soundmedicine.org. 
I'm Eric Metcalf, and your sound medicine stat is zero. The FDA is revisiting its decades-old approach to regulating homeopathic medica- uh, products. One central principle of homeopathy is to use a tiny amount of active ingredient. Some homeopathic remedies may be so diluted that they contain none, in other words, zero percent of the active ingredient. So taking a homeopathic remedy may not be so different from not taking it. Australia's National Health and Medical Research Council recently concluded that there are no, again, zero health conditions for which there is reliable evidence that homeopathy is effective. The NIH points out that the basis of homeopathy is, quote, inconsistent with fundamental concepts of chemistry and physics. So maybe it's time for the FDA to defer regulation of homeopathy to a more appropriate agency. May I suggest the Ministry of Magic? That was the number zero, and I'm Eric Metcalf. Coming up, some suggestions for parents who are navigating what it means to have a transgender child. Clinicians and doctors are starting to say, well, wait a minute, might this be what the kids are really thinking, and what would happen if we actually support them in this identity? And later, you'll see those defibrillators just about everywhere now. But what if you actually had to use one? Would you know what to do? Everyone stand clear. Push the shock button. Shock delivered. You're listening to Sound Medicine. Underwriting for Sound Medicine's health news headlines comes from Marion University College of Osteopathic Medicine. More information at marion.edu slash medical school. I'm Jill Dittmeyer with this week's health news headlines. World leaders gathered this week to discuss the current status of the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. No new cases have been reported in Liberia, where a clinical trial on a vaccine for the disease is underway. The World Health Organization last week said the outbreak still qualifies as an international emergency, even though the number of cases has plummeted. Duke University researchers issued two studies that made news this week. One looked at ways to keep our brains sharp as we get older. Scientists put together what they call the three best strategies to maintain memory and decision-making skills as we age. They include getting daily exercise, keeping our risks low from developing heart disease, and avoiding medications that can make the brain a bit fuzzy. Another study from Duke looked at heart attack risk among people who were married and divorced. They followed 16,000 people for 20 years and found that during that time, those who got divorced had a higher risk of having a heart attack. For women, almost 35 percent increase, and that number didn't improve even if they remarried. For men, 30 percent showed an increased risk of heart attack, but only if they had been divorced two or more times. And finally, weight loss in a middle-aged woman may be good for her heart and her waistline, but it might not be so good for her bones. A report from Brigham and Women's Hospital followed overweight women in the 30 to 70 age range for two years. They found that their diet or the amount of calcium in it didn't make much difference, as those who lost a moderate amount of weight also lost density in their bones, especially when compared to younger women or men in that same age group. So, does that mean we should keep eating ice cream? Reporting for Sound Medicine News, I'm Jill Dittmeyer. You're listening to Sound Medicine. I'm Barbara Lewis. There's been a lot of conversation in recent years about what it means to be transgender and what it doesn't mean as well. It is a complicated topic when you're talking about adults. My next guest has studied transgender kids to learn about both how and when they develop a gender identity that's different from, as she says, what the doctor announced in the delivery room. Dr. Christina Olson is an assistant professor of psychology at the University of Washington. She is director of the Trans Youth Project, and she joins me now. Welcome to Sound Medicine. Thanks. You recently published a study featuring transgender children that supports the idea that their gender identification isn't a fleeting notion or just a confused sense of who they are. And we want to get into that study in just a bit. But first, what does it mean when a child is transgender? 
Well, transgender really at its heart just means that a child's gender identity, what they say they are, how they identify, is different than what you might expect from the announcement made at their birth. So um, you can think of it as the doctor said the day they were born that they were a boy and the child now identifies as a girl. We would consider that kid to be transgender. Okay. And so on the other hand, what is transgender not in terms of common misconceptions? Yeah, we get a lot of common misconceptions. A lot of people wonder if, for example, are we now including kids who are like tomboys as transgender? And and no, we don't. Tomboys often are kids who maybe are, you know, are identified as female by doctors, but they also identify themselves as female. They just happen to have preferences that are kind of for stereotypically male stuff. But those kids don't say, I am a boy. These kids who are transgender are kids who are saying, this is who I am. And it's not just about what activities I like to play with or what I want to do or who my friends are. It's who I am. Um, And that's a pretty big distinction. And another thing people often confuse is the difference between being gay and being transgender. So one thing to remember is that our kids in our study, you know, these kids are often two, three, four, five years of age when they're identifying as male or female. But kids really don't know anything about who they're interested in romantically at that age. It's just kind of off the table. This is really about gender identity, not who someone is or isn't attracted to. Traditionally, how have child psychologists and other developmental experts recommended that transgender children and their parents handle their gender identification? Well, until pretty recently, um, the dominant thought about transgender kids was that these are kids who are showing psychopathology. um, And what you need to do is you need to treat these kids by teaching them, no, you, you are a boy and this is how boys act and you kind of take away or punish them if they're doing kind of girly things. There's also been a history of thinking that the parents are to blame or, you know, there's something other people have done wrong and so they'll do therapy to try to change the whole family dynamic. But it's only recently that some psychologists and clinicians and doctors are starting to say, well, wait a minute, might this be what the kids are really thinking and what would happen if we actually support them in this identity what will their lives look like? And I would say that even today, it's pretty split amongst those two camps of whether they say support the kid the way they're claiming to be or whether they're like, no, we got to change them. So they're identifying the quote right way. You know, transgender people have on average about 10 times the national suicide rate. They have extreme rates of high depression, anxiety. Lots of transgender people's families reject them. Um, They lose all sorts of social support. And people have said, well, we need to change that. And I think that that has been the main impetus for people saying, well, wait a minute. What if we have, you know, society change a bit or our perceptions of these kids change a bit? Can we actually reverse those statistics? Um, And that's what the families that are in my study are primarily these families, these families who are saying, like, we're going to try this because what people have done in the past isn't working. Yeah. So let's talk about your new study. Can you tell us about the children you recruited, how old they were, what you were trying to find out? So this is an ongoing project of tracking transgender kids' development. We're recruiting kids 3 to 12. Our first paper are kids who are 5 to 12 at the time, um, and they are being supported in their gender identity. This means that they're going to school, presenting their gender to everybody as the thing that they identify as, um, which is not the thing that the doctor announced the day that they were born. So these are, for example, a kid who might be thought of as a natal boy who now identifies as female, goes to school as female, looks female if you saw him on the street. These are the kinds of kids that are in my study. So you asked them questions. I mean, how did your test pose questions that truly got to the core of whether these kids identified as male or female? That's a good question. So we have a couple different kinds of tasks. Um, We not only asked them questions like you and I are having this conversation right now, but we also um, gave them these computer tasks that measure the speed with which kids associate themselves with the concepts of male and female. And it turns out that previous work has shown that, you know, if you grab any random little girl off the street um, and she does this task, she's much quicker to think of herself as female than to think of herself as male. Um, And so this, this task had shown that before with any average kid on the street 
street. And so what we did was we took that measure and we said, well, what if we use that measure? Because most of the kids don't even understand what it's doing. They're just like, you know, hitting some keys, sorting some pictures and words. But that task tends to be really hard to fake. So kids don't know what it means. They don't understand that we're recording their speed with which they're categorizing things. So we did that and we gave that task to our group of transgender kids. And what we found was that the kids actually look exactly like what they say they are. So if a kid is transgender and identifies as female, they look statistically identical to any other child who is female, which suggested to us, this isn't just something they're, you know, saying, they're not playing around. This really seems to be the identity that they hold for themselves. Okay, tell me a little bit about that task. I mean, what what, what are they sorting? I mean, what are they, they looking at and deciding? It's called an implicit association test. Basically, what happens is that they're sorting pictures of boys and girls into two categories. And then along the way, they're also sorting words that are related to themselves or others. So they're words like me, my, mine, or words like they, them, other. And they're using these two keys. So sometimes they have to categorize, for example, pictures of girls and me using one button and pictures of boys and others using the other button, or they do the opposite, me and boys and them and girls. And the idea is that, in general, we're much faster, everybody, um, when we're sorting concepts together, if we link them in some way to each other. So if I think of myself as female, then I'm going to be much faster when female and me uses the same button than when male and me uses the same button. And we use that same basic logic. This has been used literally in, like, hundreds of studies of different topics about race, about gender, about all sorts of different kinds of social categories. So we just use this one about gender identity in this particular context. Now, you serve as the director of an organization called the Trans Youth Project. What are you hoping to accomplish with this project, and what other types of studies are you planning? Basically, this is going to be the biggest study of transgender children's development. We're recruiting kids that are 3 to 12 ongoing, and what we're hoping is to follow them through their development, not only in early childhood to say how is their development different or the same than other kinds of kids, but also what will their development look like into the teen years, into the adult years, and beyond. And the idea there is that we can try to understand how this generation, which really is kind of the first generation of kids who are being supported in their gender identity, how are they going to differ from previous generations in which today's transgender adults, nearly all of them um, didn't begin presenting to others as their gender identity until they were already adults. These kids are having a totally different life experience. I often call them gender pioneers, and we're interested in tracking this first generation of gender pioneers so that 10 years from now, when a parent has a transgender child, they actually can look at all the data. They can say, well, here's what life seems to look like for kids who are supported in their gender identity, and here's what life looks like for those kids who haven't been supported in their gender identity. And then they can kind of make an informed decision for themselves for what they're looking for. Christina Olson, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Dr. Christina Olson is an assistant professor of psychology at the University of Washington, and she is the director of the Trans Youth Project. We'll post a link to her study at our website, soundmedicine.org. The most common birthmark in infants is sometimes called a strawberry birthmark, or technically an infantile hemangioma. It is an unusual growth that can appear soon after birth and then often will fade away later on. Recently, though, a new study looked at using a beta blocker drug, something that's usually used to treat high blood pressure, to reduce these growths. To learn more, we turn to Dr. Kate Putkin, who is Director of Pediatric Dermatology at Johns Hopkins. Infantile hemangiomas are the most common vascular tumor in infants. I don't like the word tumor because it makes them sound scarier than they typically are. They're completely benign and don't 
cause any health threat like a cancer would. But they are the most common vascular tumors in babies occurring in 4 to 5% of infants. So terrifically common. Every pediatrician sees and treats them and dermatologists are involved in treating them as well when they prove to be a little bit more complicated. They really are very interesting for several reasons. I like treating them because they have this incredibly dynamic life cycle where they usually are not visible at birth and then they grow very rapidly in the first several weeks of life and for the first couple months of life grow quite quickly and then they stabilize and then they decrease in size gradually over the first few years of life and so from a tumor growth cycle standpoint it's quite interesting that something would be there and then not be there and there has been a lot of movement in the last several years in treatment options for them that has really shifted our focus in management dramatically. So if they show up, they grow quickly, and then they tend to fade away on their own, why treat them? I mean, do they fade away completely, or can parents expect some sort of um, scarring or, or something left over? It depends. The answer is different depending on sort of where the hemangioma is located and based on the size of the hemangioma. So the uh, hemangioma can be quite small and really more of a cosmetic nuisance, but depending on the location on the body, sometimes they can obstruct the eye and so be a problem for vision as children are developing vision. They can be present in the diaper area. They can ulcerate, um, they, which when they ulcerate, they can be exquisitely painful. They can be large on the face and a certain group of them when located on the head and neck can be associated with internal problems like changes in blood vessels and the structure of the brain itself. They can be associated with heart problems, so changes in the major vessels around the heart, and they can also be associated with eye abnormalities. But the most common reason that that we treat them is, as you suggest, that they leave behind, often without treatment, some degree of scarring. And in groups of babies who never have had any treatment, about 70% of them will have some residual lesion that's left. So after nature has sort of done all that it will do as far as maximal growth and maximal involution or, or decrease in size, there's often left behind in the majority of kids either some blood vessels that are still visible on the surface or what tends to be more problematic and noticeable is this kind of loose scar tissue that can just look like sometimes just sort of a, a like a baggy piece of extra skin. And so obviously, depending on where that's located on the body and the size of it, that can really sort of go beyond what most people would consider cosmetic into what we would really more adequately term disfigurement. So a new study from France supported the benefits of a drug called propranolol for treating these birthmarks. I mean, what does this drug do in general? And, and how how does it work for hemangiomas? It's a brilliant question because the short answer is we don't know exactly how it works, but what we do know is that we are learning more about the likely mechanism of action, sort of how it does what it does. But what it clearly does is it works dramatically more effectively than the drug therapy that was available to us prior to 2008 when it was first reported. And it results in a rapid change in color and a rapid decrease in the size of the hemangioma much faster than what nature would do for us on its own. And it often helps to prevent that residual scarring that can be present. And if it's causing a complication, for instance, like obstructing vision, it will decrease the hemangioma rapidly enough that there will not be permanent effects on visual development for the baby. And what was this um, drug originally developed for? Because this is a new use for it. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a really old drug. Um, and so it's a neat story for a couple of reasons. But um, it was drug developed in the early 1960s and it's been used for decades in children and in adults mainly to treat high blood pressure, but also to treat abnormal heart rhythms, and it has been used to treat migraines and other things. And it was discovered by chance to be effective in treating hemangiomas, so it was initially given by a group of physicians in France 
who gave propranolol to an infant who had been on high-dose steroids, which was our prior standard treatment. And the baby developed a heart problem as a result of all of the steroids that the baby was getting. And the physicians noticed that within a week of being on propranolol that the hemangioma started to shrink and it was a large lesion covering a large portion of the baby's face. And the baby was all of a sudden able to open the eye. And then that benefit continued and accelerated over the course of the rest of the amount of time that they gave it just a dramatic example. And so it, it was really the intuition of that group of doctors who initially picked up on an old drug with a new use. And we don't often find that, but it's also really lovely to have something like that in pediatrics where our threshold for being willing to give something new to a child, we really want to have that safety data there. And we really want to know that it's a drug that is going to cause more good than harm. And so knowing that this drug had been on the market and had been long used in kids really made it an appealing option for a lot of folks. I know you said that we don't know exactly why it works, but any theories as to why it works? There actually has been a lot of work done to try to elucidate what exactly this drug is doing at the cellular level over the last few years, and and we're definitely closer. But it clearly causes vasoconstrictions. Within just one or two days of giving propranolol, you will see the hemangioma go from bright fuchsia pink often to a deep violet color of purple. And that argues that the blood vessels inside this birthmark are really kind of clamping down, constricting. And so there is some evidence now that that actually is happening as a result of the drug. And so that happens early. And then longer term, there is some theory and some reasonable evidence that it is decreasing new blood vessel formation from existing blood vessels and that it is also preventing the formation of blood vessels from stem cells within the hemangioma. So the idea is that probably through multiple mechanisms, propranolol is resulting in the hemangioma decreasing in size and involuting more rapidly than what nature would do on its own. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining me on Sound Medicine. Thank you so much for the invitation. It really was a pleasure. Dr. Kate Putkin is Director of Pediatric Dermatology at Johns Hopkins. Something less serious now. If you feel the need to laugh at someone's bad joke, don't think for a minute that you're actually fooling them. Can you believe someone actually got research funding to study this? Well, they did, and Jill Dittmeyer reports on it now in this week's Sound Medicine Checkup. (laughs) UCLA communications professor Greg Bryant studies laughter for a living. So I like to use the example of a salesman. Somebody's trying to sell you something, and you make some sort of remark that's construed as being funny, the salesman might try to fake laugh to try to make you think he's your friend and then try to sell you something. I study pragmatics in conversation and nonverbal acoustic features in speech. So laughter is sort of a vocalization that's perfect for that because it's nonverbal and communicative and happens in conversation a lot. But can we fake that nonverbal communication? Can we tell? Should we care? Bryant says the answer is yes, yes, yes. I got laughs that were produced between friends who knew each other for, um, on average, about two years. Those are genuine laughs and sound like this. (laughs) And then I got another sample of laughs from women just asking them to laugh on command. Those were the fakes. (laughs) Could you tell the difference? 70% of the people in Bryant's study could. There's an emotional vocal system that we share with other animals that is underlying the production of things like laughing and crying and pain shrieks. And then we have a speech system that is a human unique system that um, for speech, which is something that only humans produce. And so the fake laughs, we believe, are being produced by this speech system. Bryant says we fake it to fit in. You get the benefits of people thinking that you're their friend when you're genuinely laughing with them, right, and you're sharing an emotional moment. Um, so a fake laugh is sort of an attempt to achieve those benefits, but then, but without the emotional trigger underneath, meaning that there is probably a higher likelihood that you aren't 
going to reciprocate in the way that an actual friend would. So what should we do if we encounter a fake laugher? Um, fake laugh back. <laughs> so, I, like I don't know. I mean, if you're, in, if you're in a situation of fake laughter, then have your antennas up because maybe you're being manipulated in some way. Reporting for Sound Medicine, I'm Jill Dittmeyer. You can listen to Sound Medicine anytime by signing up for our free weekly podcast. It's at our website, soundmedicine.org. Plus, we're at Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, Swell AM, and iTunes. Just search for Sound Medicine Radio Hour. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Welcome back to Sound Medicine. I'm Barbara Lewis. Last week on this program, we spoke with a member of the medical profession that we patients might never actually meet, a radiologist. Well, here's another profession that plays a huge role in our surgical outcomes, but usually we just meet them briefly, hardly long enough to build any rapport. It's your anesthesiologist. And we thought it might be interesting to speak with one when there wasn't any surgery looming in our immediate future. Dr. Edward Mariano is an associate professor of anesthesiology, perioperative, and pain medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine. Welcome to Sound Medicine. Well, thank you for having me. How well understood is the specialty of anesthesiology? I mean, after all, when you're doing your work during a surgery, we might meet you briefly (laughs) before we go in, and then we never see you again. I mean, what do we need to know about what you do? Yeah, for many patients, especially meeting their anesthesiologist for the first time, you don't know anything about that person. Um, In addition, it's actually very common that patients really don't understand the training that physician anesthesiologists go through. So, for example, when I was in residency, I remember a patient asking me um, what I wanted to do eventually and if I wanted to become a real doctor someday, (laughs) and which was really not offensive at all, only because I think as a field, we perhaps maybe have not done such a great job educating the public about what we do. But yeah, all anesthesiologists, they complete four years of medical school. Uh, some even you know, have a combined you know, medical degrees plus you know, PhDs. Uh, we also do four years of residency training after medical school, you know, like many of our other physician colleagues. So when we're out cold uh, and you're doing your work, what, what are you doing for us? During that time, uh, it's not as easy as a uh, you know, continually putting a a coin in the meter, like if you're refreshing your parking, uh, which is sometimes what some of our patients ask us. You know, sometimes I, you know, one of our patients you know, the other day had asked, you know, well, you know, what happens when it runs out? And so <laughs> yeah, I had to explain, well, yeah, anesthesia is a, is a constant and evolving process you know, during the period of having surgery. And so, for example, you know, no two anesthetics you know, given to two different patients you know, are ever the same. Um, we never know in advance yeah, how one, one patient, one human, will respond to the different medications and combinations of medications that we give. And then when you combine that with all of the different changes that happen to your body during surgery, um, just the inflammation from, uh, from the tissue injury um, and the changes in uh, blood loss, you know, that you know, a lot of that can have on your blood pressure, you know, all of those things in combination are a unique circumstance you know, that each anesthesiologist has to deal with. So um, in addition to you know, being present and being alert and observing what happens during the surgery um, and assisting the surgeon and the nurses that are in charge of each patient's care, um, each anesthesiologist also has to anticipate what's happening, recognize changes in you know, patient's physiology, uh, recognize you know, what the right timing of administering a drug will be, um, and know what the effect of that drug will be on each person's physiology. You know, what will happen to their breathing? What will happen to that, uh, that patient's uh, blood pressure when a, a certain drug is given? So, so it's a lot to think about. So you're in the operating room. Um, we're, get, we're having our surgery performed on us. Are, are you in like constant motion, or, or is there some downtime? I mean, you've got the patient's breathing, the heartbeat, the blood pressure to monitor. Um, are you giving anesthesia um, throughout the surgery, or is it, like you said, a dose and then it runs out? <laughs> so, it, um, so it sometimes depends. So, for, uh, for example, uh, what I mean is you know, we, there's always a physician anesthesiologist that's directly um, available for you know, each patient's care, you know, but the types of anesthetics really vary. So, for example, you know, we do certain types of surgeries 
uh, under you know, a local anesthetic you know, with uh, monitored anesthesia care, which is essentially a sedative anesthetic. So for those types of procedures, for example, when we care for patients um, who are having um, you know, GI endoscopy or if they're having, um, you know, for example, if they're having uh, local procedures you know, with a plastic surgeon, you know, then perhaps you know, the, you know, the depth of anesthesia is, is fairly light. Um, the patient is sedated, comfortable. Uh, much of the, you know, the procedure, at least you know, the, the physical stimulation, is being um, you know, covered by a local anesthetic or like Novocaine uh, or in the family of Novocaine that's administered by the person performing the procedure. And so the anesthesiologist's role at that point you know, primarily is to observe the patient's responsiveness, you know, to communicate. You know, patients during those types of cases you know, may, re- may remember bits and pieces of the experience. Um, but the anesthesiologist is there to essentially adjust the level of sedation you know, according to the patient's comfort, and then also recognize you know, when patients um, you know, are having you know, side effects or complications related to the procedure or medications and respond quickly and appropriately. The main type of anesthesia and the most common form that's performed in the operating room is general anesthesia. Um, and that's essentially like um, a coma that's induced by anesthetics. And no one, uh, no one anesthetic is the same for every single patient. Um, you know, the, the process of providing general anesthesia is a constant but adjusting um, level of, of either you know, anesthetic and, and intravenous medications. Um, and depending on how the patient uh, responds to the different medications, you know, the anesthesiologist can adjust the level of anesthesia higher or lower you know, based on each individual circumstance. And so it's really not, you know, not as simple as you know, just starting it and then you know, keeping it going and then turning everything off because every single patient responds to anesthetics and surgery differently. When you're trying to make that connection, what lessons have you learned? What works, what doesn't work when you just have those few minutes, really? And, and, you know, the patients and their families are really, really nervous at that time, usually. So much of preparing a patient and and family for surgery really shouldn't start on the day of surgery. So one of the things that we've been working on doing is trying to expand our our role as anesthesiologists further out in the perioperative period. So, for example, if we have patients with you know, chronic health conditions that really require, um, you know, say, for example, a specialist intervention like a cardiologist or pulmonologist, you know, then we actually start to review you know, the patient's particular case with the surgeon weeks in advance of their surgery and start to make some plans and make sure that the patient's man- medications are managed, um, if there are certain um, behavioral and lifestyle changes that can, the patient can really take ownership over and, and to improve outcomes like smoking cessation and, um, and, and really changing you know, the way that they manage their blood sugars, for example, then we try to do those very early. And so that way, as we start to get closer to the surgery, even days before surgery, at that point, we can really focus on teaching the patient and family about what the experience will be like. So when you come into the hospital, here's what you do. If you have obstructive sleep apnea, don't forget to bring your CPAP machine. Those types of details, I think, are so important you know, for really caring for the, you know, the patient during the entire period. And I think it's almost impossible today to really crush all of those important details on the day of surgery. Dr. Edward Mariano is an associate professor of anesthesiology, perioperative and pain medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine. finally this week, they're in just about every gym and public facility now. And with luck, there's someone around that actually knows how to use an automatic external defibrillator if there's a cardiac emergency. My guest, Bree Robinson, is an instructor for the Red Cross, training people on how and when to use AEDs. An AED, or an automated external defibrillator, is a portable electronic device that analyzes um, the heart rhythm when someone is in sudden cardiac arrest. 
It determines if the person has a shockable heart rhythm like ventricular fibrillation or ventricular tachycardia, and it administers an electrical shock to the heart to momentarily disrupt that abnormal rhythm, allowing the heart to reset into a normal heartbeat. So how is sudden cardiac arrest different from a heart attack? Well, when someone's having a heart attack, they're having a, a serious cardiac emergency, but they're still conscious and functioning because they still have a heartbeat. When somebody's in cardiac arrest, their heart has stopped beating for some reason. Whether it's from a heart attack or another illness or injury, something has disrupted the heart's electrical system, and that person will be unconscious and not breathing or moving or having a pulse or anything like that. Okay, so that probably sounds like the primary symptoms if you see someone <laughs> who's just out cold. But how do you know that, you know, because I'm thinking of somebody who is a like a bystander that's willing to go and, and get one of these kits. We might be wondering, okay, you know, what am I seeing here? Is somebody just painted um, or is, is this really a cardiac arrest where I need to run for this box? Right, absolutely. Anytime you see somebody drop suddenly to the ground, especially with no warning symptoms, um, somebody should go grab the AED just to be sure. If they've just fainted, they should come to pretty quickly. So by the time you go over to them and, and try to see what's going on, you should see motion and, and hopefully them waking up and talking. If they don't respond at all, like if you try to wake them up by tapping on them or shouting at them and you get no response whatsoever, um, the next thing you should do is lean down and see whether there's any breathing. Is their chest moving up and down? Do you hear or feel any breathing at their mouth or nose? And if that's what you fine, no breathing, no movement, no responsiveness, um, then they're in cardiac arrest most likely, and you will need that defibrillator. And you have a defibrillator right by you. Um, so kind of walk us through this device. Um, describe parts of the AED and, and, and what they do. Well, there are different models of AEDs, so they're all going to look slightly different, but they all have the same basic functions and the same basic parts. You're going to have the main part of the machine, and it's going to have usually an on-off switch. Um, it might be in a case, or it might have a lid or something that needs to be opened. Uh, you're going to get it out and turn it on, and then it's going to walk you through step-by-step step from that point. You should find somewhere in that case um, electrodes that you attach to the person's chest. You may find adult and pediatric electrodes, so you want to check and see you know, which one's appropriate for the person that I'm helping. Pediatric electrodes should be used on someone who's under 8 or weighs less than 55 pounds. So we're going to get out the appropriate electrodes. You just listen to the device. It tells you to bear the person's chest of all clothing. Remove clothing from person's chest. Dry their chest of any moisture and attach the electrodes. You just make it look just like the pictures, the diagrams that are on the electrodes. Attach pads firmly to person's chest, as shown. Then you allow the machine to analyze. Analyzing rhythm. Everyone stand clear. And it'll tell you whether or not they need a shock. Shock advised. Charging. Everyone stand clear. Push the shock button. Shock delivered. Begin five cycles of CPR. And you should provide care for the following two minutes. Um, AEDs will reanalyze and, if necessary, reshock the person every two minutes. So you just leave it on and running, and if you need to do CPR, you do CPR in the meantime. And it just talks you through step by step from that point. I would imagine that this sounds a little bit intimidating, but you've talked to people who have used this, and, and what was their response? Was it really easy to follow? They are really easy to use. They're incredibly simple. They, um, they've simplified it so much. You just turn it on and follow those voice prompts. There's often going to be visual prompts as well. So if somebody's hearing impaired, if they can't hear what it's saying, or if you're in a loud environment like a mall or an airport or something, you can look at the screen and it also has those prompts on there and it will guide you through. Um, so they're incredibly easy to use. Do you have any sense that people get a little nervous about doing this? I mean, all together. I mean, it seems like there's a lot of responsibility here that might give a bystander a, a pause. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of people don't know what an AED is or what it does in the first place. And then when you start talking about an electrical shock, people are like, wow, <laughs> I don't know about that. But AEDs are designed to be very safe as well as simple to use. So you can't shock somebody who doesn't need the shock. The AED will determine if that person has a shockable rhythm. So you don't have to worry about if I hook it up to them and they didn't need it, um, did I make a huge mistake? The AED will just tell you that no shock is needed. 
needed. So you don't have to worry about that. And then all you have to do is just keep other people clear of the person so no one's in contact with their their body or with the um, AED itself. You just tell everybody to stand back and give you some space and and you just push the buttons when it says push the buttons. So you really would have to try pretty hard to mess it up. Okay, so there isn't any common mistake that that's made. I would say the the only mistake that I see in my in my classes most frequently is just people get excited um, in the training. They realize, wow, this is something that I can do. This is pretty cool. You know, I could actually save someone. Um, and they kind of anticipate what's going to happen. And they might start um, sort of jumping the gun and going ahead in the steps. And sometimes that will confuse the machine because it needs to operate in its sort of standard protocol. So if they start plugging things in before it tells them, plug that in, then it might interfere with um, basically the steps that the AED wants to take. So um, you might just delay the care that you give to the person. So it's better to just stay calm, take a deep breath, and just let it walk you through step by step. And how obvious are these uh, devices? I mean, is it easy to know that they're even around? It is, actually. A lot of people don't realize that they're there, not really paying attention, but you'll see stickers on the front door of facilities that have AEDs that will say, you know, heart safe facility or AED located inside. Um, so right when you go in the front door, you may notice that little sticker, that emblem on the door. Uh, and then the AEDs themselves should be in a prominent central location, and they should be very clearly marked with a sign. Usually it's a case about eye level hanging on the wall. The case may have an alarm on it. But it's just to alert people that the AED is uh, currently out of its case, potentially to be used in an emergency. So other trained people can hear that and go and, and provide assistance. Um, or if there's, you know, security or somebody in the area who would need to um, help or access 911 or anything like that, then they're also alerted to it. So the alarm is not there to deter people from using the AED. It's just to alert people that the AED is out of its case. We really emphasize in training that, you know, if they do mix up the steps or, you know, get something out of order or forget a step or whatever, I make sure to back them up and say, you know, hey, hold on. I know that you're excited about this, but we need to make sure we do this in, in the right steps and, and get everything done correctly so that in that real emergency, it comes back to you in that correct order and you can stay calm and do what you need to do. Bree Robinson, thank you so much for coming in and explaining this to us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Bree Robinson is a Red Cross health and safety instructor. We'll post a video of an AED in action at our website. Just go to soundmedicine.org. And that's it for this week's program. Sound Medicine senior producer is Nora Hyatt. Eric Metcalf produces our interviews. Chris Lieber records and edits the program and chooses our music. Steve Ali of Jazzville Studios wrote our theme music. Carmel Roth is the managing editor of Sound Medicine News with help from Andrea Moraskin. And I'm Barbara Lewis, wishing you good health. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Thanks for listening. For more information about anything you heard on this podcast, please go to our website, soundmedicine.org. I'm Barbara Lewis, wishing you good health.